Okay, great. So we're going to start. Now in partnership with the new Westport Library and the Cook Center for the Arts, it's Oh Brother, Not Another Podcast with me, Trace Burroughs. And me, Migs Burroughs, <laughs> with our guest today, uh, Peter Cadis, who uh, is the owner-operator uh, of uh, Tarquin Studios in Bridgeport, a sound recording studio, and uh, dozens upon dozens of recording of groups have recorded there. And uh, and I'd like to, uh, actually people can't see this, but behind you is this sort of wooden thing. I'm just curious, is that soundproofing or is that art? It's, 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 it is uh, acoustic treatment as opposed to soundproofing. It's, oh, okay. it's an RPG Omnifuser, but yeah. So, oh, that's very, but it looks uh, a lot like art too. It does, yeah. I, I'd say it's got a great look to it. So anyway, the, but the audience can't see it. But if they do want to see it, I do want to see your studio, uh, which is pretty amazing to look at. Uh, it's what, what gives the website, yeah, the web address. Oh, it's, it's, I think it's, I should know. It's, Tar I think it's actually tarquinrecords.com. Yeah. Okay. And on that site is, is a link to the studio. Um, and again, as I said er earlier too, before we started, I don't think the site has been updated in many years, but uh, it's, it's close enough. Yeah, well, there's some great pictures, photographs for any you know, people that haven't been in a studio like me. I don't think I ever have. Maybe it was in the carriage house somewhere and wasn't mm -hmm. that sure. for 10 minutes or something. But um, yeah, well, first of all, just to the name, I just researched Tarquin. I mean, I know it's your brother's name, but it, it, yeah. there's a... It's from Lucius Tarquinius Superbus. Do you know if you're familiar with that? Uh, yes. The, derivation? There's no Etruscan connection. It's oh, okay. uh, my brother, when he, when he was in junior high school, he, was one of the, he felt compelled to change his name. And he had all oh. sorts of ridiculous names for a few minutes. And then he settled on Tarkin. And when <laughs> we started our record label, you know, almost 30 years ago now, um, you know, I wasn't going to call it Peter a record. So Tarkin had a, <laughs> a ring to it. <laughs> yeah, and he enjoys getting a lot of credit that he doesn't necessarily deserve. You know? Oh, that's funny. Yeah, but he was he was part of the studio when it started. I mean, I I think there was a while where we thought he might do the same thing I do, but yeah, things just went a little bit of a different way. But I was at his house last night. He lives in Pound Ridge, and uh, helping him with some Pro Tools problems. He has a little basement studio now. But anyway, um, but yeah, my my studio is pretty nuts because I've been collecting gear now for yeah over 30 years and you know the world is i mean i don't know how how geeky you want me to get about recording technology but you know nowadays everything is done in computers and um so much can be done you know in computers with plugins and software that it's really extraordinary now 30 years ago there were no computers in studios at all mm. sorry the growling dub um and you know you just had tape machines you had a mixing board and then you had outboard gear. And if you wanted to get weird, interesting sounds, you needed to acquire these, these cool pieces of gear. Um, not true anymore. But anyway, I spent all these years acquiring them. They look really good. And even if I don't need them anymore, I still, I still have them. So it's at the very least visually impressive. But I, I, still, I still use you know, a great deal of that stuff all the time. I even use my tape machines sometimes. We hear these stories of, you know, early stories of, the, actually, I have to correct myself. I was in Abbey Road Studios in 1965, ah. um, hoping to catch the Beatles there. I just walked in off the street and Manfred Mann was coming out of the studio and I walked in and they said, what are you doing here? And I just said, oh, I just, just read, I read that Abbey Road Studios was where the Beatles record. 
and I was the only person there, and they gave me a full tour of the studio. No, no oh. musicians were recording at the time. But what I was intrigued by, they said, here's the echo chambers the Beatles used. And it's truly, it was just, it was a, it was a, room a, crawl, and a speaker in it, right? Yeah, it was a crawl space with some, yeah. with like six microphones and a speaker in it. Yeah. And that was an echo chamber. Yeah. Boy, the English are sure polite. I mean, they must have spent an hour with me, one person roaming around. Inter anyway, it was fascinating. But you don't, and then you hear stories of, you know, the Beatles uh, cutting snippets of tape together and running them, you know, yeah. endless loops and back. Do you ever play with that kind of stuff? Uh, sure. But it, it, it's such a different world now. But yeah, I mean, in the old days, you really did have to do so many things the hard way. Um, but things like an echo chamber like that. Uh, you know, now there's there's endless plugins that emulate all those things. There, there's a specific Abbey Road echo chamber. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh. yeah. Absolutely. And, and, um, and so, you know, in some cases, in most cases, they do a great job, or especially like uh, plugins for uh, tape delays, you know, if, uh, as opposed to a reverb. But anyway, anyway, um, I do have in my house, in my basement, I have an EMT 140 plate reverb probably weighs you know 600 pounds and it's a giant you know metallic plate that people have been using since the 60s now there are a million plugins for that too but um that's like the one case where i feel no plugin sounds quite like the original so at great ex you know i spent more money two years ago fixing it than i spent buying it you know mm -hmm. so um some things just you know old school things still really are worth it you know especially old microphones and things and it's it's strange how uh, I don't know if it's if it's the age or if it's the build quality, but um, there's still yeah I, I definitely have a, a doggy. Can you stop growling? But the uh, she's biting my hand. Um, I have a real mixture of, of of brand new cutting edge technology, computer stuff, interfaces, and a lot of vintage equipment. And uh, the vintage stuff still gets used a lot, and it doesn't sound vintage. You know, it just sounds really good. Yeah. You know, like now I'm a musician and I've been dabbling in complete control. I don't know what they call that, you know. Oh, it, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Soft synth stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You can like put any kind of samples and it has all kinds of thousands of sounds. It comes with it. A lot of them are useless. But um, anyhow, uh, sampling now they sample everything. So, you know, acoustic guitars, electric guitars, bass guitars, horns. And, they, you know, they actually for the people who are listening to this, like they actually record these instruments like with eight microphones and every quarter in the, you know, there is on yeah. the piano board. So you hit a key and it makes in that key that sound from the acoustic guitar and it's the actual sound but it's recorded. Are you do you do you like those samples or are there any that are really good that you like to use or, you know, that's, what's your opinion on all that? That's a really hard question. I have complete control among many other things with a K no less. Um, <laughs> but I don't use complete control that much anymore because it, it is pretty overwhelming. There's so much stuff. Yeah, a lot really of my good. friends who are deeper into programming stuff do use it. And, and I, I can tell it's the way to go in a, a lot of things, but I, I do use soft sense um, to people listening who don't know what those are. Like, you can own a synthesizer, you know, a physical instrument, a keyboard you plug in, but soft synths are synthesizers just in the computer that you can play with a, an interface or you can just program. You know, I, I've certainly, um, it all depends on the situation. Yes, soft synths can be, you know, sterile and boring or whatever. On the other hand, some of the sampling is so good. If you're trying to achieve something simple or quickly, it's incredible. You know, it really is quite extraordinary. So, 
So, um, so what you're saying that those are those actual instruments they recorded and, and put it into the synthesizer, or just the synthesizer trying to imitate those? Instruments? Like, what, like, what, like a complete control is called the soft synth, yeah, because oh. it's not a, a physical thing, it's in the oh. computer, right. right? So, it could you know, all the samples you talked about, you know, drums, any, anything, um, you know, mellotrons, you know, like the Beatles used, um, or just it, but now, you know, the hippest thing for. I don't know how many years now in the world of sort of indie rock, the, the, the music I largely make is um is this sort of 80s thing. And it's not it's no longer even an 80s thing. It's this but this obsession with analog synthesizers, you know, and so you know the the soft sense in the computer for those things are are extraordinary. Like you know the the mini moog or the arp sense, they they sound really real. But you know again without getting too geeky in terms of like process or or, or recording stuff. Um, I still own a lot of old analog synths and they each have their place. It's definitely part of it is like, you know, just tape sounds so different from digital. Yes and no, but it's the, the process is so different. Like with tape, you have to commit to things. You're limited in what you could do. In the computer, you can do anything. So maybe you take a performance that isn't totally inspired, but you can fix it and then it's good enough. Whereas in, you know, before that you would have to get an inspired tape and you if there was a problem, you couldn't fix it, or it was much harder to fix. So it's it's more about the process than, than that pure sonic sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. And with the keyboards too, yes, having the real, I have a real mini move among other things. And there's something about turning the knobs in real life sometimes and, and, and playing with the sounds that, that you'll never get from the computer or the, you know, the controller. But, um, but again, they each have their own place. You know, the computer is so quick and easy and recallable. You know, you, you, you dial in the MIDI, you know, the notes you want played, and you can have any number of thousands of sounds play that back, you know, right. later in a month or two. You know. I should, we're, we're co-sponsored, produced by the Quick Center. Do you, do you how have you been involved with them? Uh, not so much. I was always excited, though, that we had that kind of place so nearby here in town. Um, and um, I am I'm good friends with Kurt Leon, who works there. He plays drums in my band and uh, recently, and um, he he sort of, he works in in my house, you know, where the, my main studio is upstairs in the downstairs studio. Yeah. Um, which is becoming more and more legit by the day. But, <laughs> and uh, we also play a lot of tennis together, but anyway. Um, okay. So you haven't yeah, recorded their concerts or anything in particular? Though? No, no, I never have. Oh. I've, I've seen a few things there over the years, but, um, but yeah, I, I've, I've definitely underutilized it. I feel yeah. bad. And now, now with all the craziness, I don't sure. know what's next, you know. So how do you get like, you do um, the different, you know, you do everything basically, mix, engineer, produce. Um, yeah. What's your favorite part of all that? I would say mixing because engineering, like recording is brutal. It's just <laughs> like, uh, you know, <laughs> someone comes in and says, let's make a record. <laughs> let's record 12 songs. It's like, oh, here we go. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a nightmare like when a band says you know what if we just did an ep uh, that's i always think that's i think that's the greatest thing ever and, and things might be swinging that way a little more now for so many years you know lps rules right. yeah um or if a band says a lot of times too you know it's such a big commitment to you know the money you're going to spend and the time you're going to spend to make a record sometimes uh bands will say or i'll just put out there what if they're if they're within a reasonable dis distance why don't you come and we'll we'll work on one song and if everyone's really psyched, we'll, you know, we'll make time to make a record. But um, 
Yeah, I find making records really grueling and exhausting and depressing <laughs> sometimes. But Don't when you're when, and producing is just <laughs> producing is just part of it. You know, producing means you know I'm giving my creative input, uh, which is which is great. But um, it just yeah, it is, and it is so different now. When I first started, I I feel like I felt that I had to have a studio because why else would someone come to me if you just say, hey, um, I want to tell you how to make your record. Why would anyone listen to you? So I had my own studio and I'd have to sort of trick people into hearing my opinion and trying things. And uh, it's, it's certainly a lot easier now, but you know, when you've done all that hard work and you put the record together, you know, the final stage is mixing. And to me, that's sort of the, the reward for all the hard work. Uh, I, got a, I got a geeky question. So for people from mastering, like when I, finish a song and, and I use Logic Pro and I have all the things and I listen to it with earphones, I listen to it without the earphones, through my computer, however people, how do you figure, back in the old days, they used to have like a transistor radio and recording studios, you know, to see how yeah. people would like listen to it or just regular at the beach or, or wherever. And then mm -hmm. how do you decide what mm -hmm. is the best mix? Because for these different um, ways of listening to music, sometimes you can't hear the bass as well, or this is too high or too low and you can't hear the singing. So how do you, what is your final solution on that kind of a problem? That's the, that's the eternal struggle. And it's really not that different now in ways. But, you know, instead of listening on a transistor radio, you look, just listen on, you know, on your phone speaker. And, you know, a guy I worked with once, the famous producer Scott Litt once said to me, we were listening to a mix in the car. And he said, oh, no, it's not good enough. It's not done. And I go, well, this stereo sucks. And he's like, that, that's like, I don't remember how he said, that's no excuse. Like it shouldn't, it should sound okay anywhere, even if the stereo sucks. So, um, yeah, and you have to, no mix is going to sound great in every possible situation. If it's a really good mix, it'll sound really good in most places, which is great. Um, but also there's no, like if you have, if you had the perfect control room ever built where you mixed records that t told you everything exactly as it was and you never had to reference your, your work other places, that would be great. But I don't know of such a place, honestly. So I don't sign off on mixes until I've listened to them in my minivan, until, mm. until I've listened, you know, on my earbuds. And um, yeah, just through the speaker of my phone. I, you really, and in my studio, I have three different sets of speakers. You know, I have a really high quality set of Neumann near fields, mid fields that sound really good, but you can't, you know, they don't, they don't sound good if it sounds bad, if you know what I'm saying. Some speakers sort of, you know, create the smiley face, add high end, add low end scoop at the low meds. They don't do that. Then I have NS10s, which are, you know, speakers that have been around forever, Yamaha NS10s, which are not very good sounding speakers, honestly. But, you know, they show you something. And then I have a big, you know, giant pair of Dynaudio acoustic M3s, which are big, you know, bright, loud speakers. And they all show you something different. You know, um, I tend to work very quietly when I'm mixing, because if you mix loudly, you're, you just, you're, your ears lose all sense of, what's going on very quickly. And, but then before I'm done with the mix and sort of printing the mix, I'll put it on the, on the big speakers and I'll play it loudly, just you know, once or twice. And it'll show you things you were not aware of. Like, oh, the vocal is still too bright. Or the kick, oh, the, oh there was more bottom on that bass drum than I realized. Things like that. But uh, not to go on and on, but the, the great thing about the world today and Pro Tools and stuff like this is the recallability can be a nightmare because bands never want to finish. But the, the fact that you can recall a mix, which means you can print a mix, go home and come back the next day and keep working on it. And you can work on all these different songs at the same time because you can recall your mix in the computer. Um, in the old days, when you, when you were done with a mix, 
at whatever time of night, that was it. You printed the mix and the next day that you, you know, the console got wiped, so everything got set, set differently. Um, and that, honestly, that was one of the most stressful things ever. So the recallability is a, is a technological gift. Um, I've, I've, but, I'm but not again, yeah. What's that? No, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. It was no, no, no. I'm, I'm talking too long. The, the I was going to say, you know, the, the the only bad side of that is because you can keep tweaking and changing forever. Sometimes there are people in bands who just want to keep tweaking forever. Yeah, and you know you're in trouble when 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 the final revisions are mostly just put it back the way it was. You know. No, I was going to say I'm not a musician, but I, I've heard musicians say many, you know, oh, I, you know, we're going to fly to Jamaica because we like the sound of that studio, or we're, you know, the Bee Gees use some studio in Miami because the studios. I mean, okay, from a naive uh, audience point of view, you know, a studio is a box with a lot of expensive equipment in it. So how does a studio have different sounds or do, does it, you know, different personality to the studio? Well, you could be talking about two different things. You know, there's the, there's the sound of the control room, which is where, you know, the mixing board is and the tape machines are and where you, you craft your sonic decisions. Now in a control room, you want that control room to be, to have no character. You want it to be accurate, you know, because you could hear, you know, you say, oh, there's, a, the, there's terrible problems in the low end and the bass. And you're like, I hear plenty of bass, but you're not hearing the right bass. You know, like you're hearing much too much of one frequency, much too little of another. So the best rooms are, are very even, doggy. And um, <laughs> but may, perhaps more, more likely what you're referring to would be the sound of, say, the live room, which is the room that you record in. I'm sorry. You want to be part of this? This is a very attention-hungry done. But um. This nice little, this is our new little puppy, Oreo. She's been coming to the studio with me for the last two months and she's a very good studio dog. She is, but um, anyway, the sound of the live room is where you know, all the musicians perform. And nowadays that's less of a thing because there's less and less performed music. But back then, I mean, yeah, the sound of the room, the ambience of the room you were performing in was huge. If you had, you know, live drums, which of course you probably did. Um, and any sort of ambience from, you know, horns or, or, or anything, even vocals, although most times with vocals, people try to sort of deaden it up. They don't want those early reflections, but um, I think that's probably what they mean. So the, you know, the sound of the live room, which, you know, should have character, and then the sound of the control room, which should just be accurate. So there you go. Yeah. Well, what your, um, your first Gig as a musician, you were in the Philistines Junior, and you put, you opened for Fish. Is that is that your origin story? <laughs> yes, it's it's funny. Um, you know, and you know, we we still do that band. We put out a record last year that I'm I'm very proud of. But um, but yeah, we started when I was at University of Vermont, and um, yeah, my sophomore year, I, th I think it, I think it was the first show we ever played that wasn't an open mic. And technically, yes, it was opening for Fish, but it was in a um, you know, uh, in a dorm. And when, when we played, I think there were about five people. And when Fish played, there were about 30 people. So it wasn't a big gig. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, how do you get like uh, groups to ask you to produce is all like uh, word of mouth because you've done so many yeah. Or is it, do you have an agent like at you? I, I have a manager, but uh, most work comes from word of mouth and comes from people, you know, liking records that I've made previously. Like, it was a very funny thing that happened, you know, because uh, the whole thing of us opening for Fish in 1986 is, is so funny. But then in 2011, 
Trey Anastasio from Fish um, asked me to produce one of his solo albums. And uh, it just was such an Thanks. odd sort of <laughs> thing yeah. that happened. But, but, but that was actually, a, I thought, a really great experience um, because we didn't really even know each other. You know, all these, and then all these like rumors started, oh, they used to be in a band. Gonna, no, we weren't. <laughs> <laughs> but that, I, I really am proud of that record. It's called Traveler. And um, we spent four months almost making it. Uh, which is a long time, but but Trey came to me because he'd heard a whole bunch of records, even some slightly obscure records that he liked the production of, um, and he let me go nuts. You know, he let me do whatever I wanted. I, uh, we used his his band for the basics, but then I I brought in a lot of my friends to play on it from bands that I work with, um, and and I played a lot on it, and and sort of did remixes. So you know, Trey was super hands on, but then at the end you know, the, the mixing and the remixing, um, you know, he was kind of hands off and I would just send him mixes and we had a great time. Anyway, I, I was I was upset that it wasn't maybe better received by Fish fans, but the, the problem is we worked so hard to make it not like Fish mm. and we succeeded. But Fish fans like Fish, so <laughs> it kind of makes sense. But I, no, I'm still proud of that record though. It's, it's, it's very ambitious, I think, production-wise. So. Anyway. So you... You actually says here you majored in um, in the visual arts. So I'm just curious, did any does the, does the visual sensibility carry over to audio sensibility in any way? At your, certainly, your, your certainly. aesthetics. Oh. Same thing, like in the kitchen too. You know, I mean, it's all it's all what creative stuff is creative stuff for sure. Mm -hmm. And if you look, I mean, if you look at my personal work, not my uh, like you know the Philistines Junior. If you if you look at listen to the music and you look at the artwork, which is also mine. They are actually extremely similar uh, in ways that music can be similar to visual arts. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's all, it's all one thing. And I, I often joke too that I feel really lucky. My favorite part of being a musician and being in a band is producing the songs that we have. I hate songwriting. It's so brutal. You know, it's so hard every time. And so in a way I have my dream job. Other people write the songs and I just help make them sound good. <laughs> Do you design, have you designed album covers? Oh, many, many album oh. covers, yeah. And I still do, do my own, you know, I, I know, I crank out the paintings pretty slowly, but I have a, a decent little body of work yeah. from the last 20 years, so, yeah. Oh, that's cool. So what, what bands out there now, what, what bands do you really like? Yeah, who should well, we be listening to? Who should, <laughs> well, who should, who should Fairfield <laughs> County be listening <laughs> to? Right, oh, sure, sure. The, um, I mean, first of all, like the, the bands, that I'm most closely associated with would be bands like The National, who I've been working with. Uh, I don't know if you know them, but they're uh, I this, yeah. National are a great band. And, and they, I started working with them in 2002. And I, I just, you know, I, I liked them right away. And I just, I just didn't think they had a chance of being a, a very, you know, big band because their music was just kind of too interesting and, and experimental. But um, they're a huge band now. I mean, they play arenas. So I'm very proud of that. Oh, and I was lucky enough to have won a Grammy for co-producing and mixing uh, one of their records a couple of years ago. Um, um, I'm proud to say I produced the first two Interpol records. Who are, Interpol was a pretty influential indie rock band. But those records now, yeah, that's almost 18 years ago or something. Um, yeah. I've, had, I've had the studio in Bridgeport since, it's been up and running since, since 90, yeah, this fall of 1999. So over 20 years, that's like, can't believe that's true yeah um but i i was i was also lucky enough to work with a band uh last year called death cab for cutie oh right. sure i hope i'll be doing more stuff with them um 
I've mixed a couple records for and I'm in the middle producing a record for a band from Australia called Gang of Youths. I don't know if you know them, but they- Gang um, of Youths, yeah. Gang of Youths, yeah. And I, again, the, the new record is extremely ambitious and with this whole quarantine thing now, they, they the band is Australian, but they live in London and I was there for a month in January working on it now everything is just on hold this very awkward hold which is hard um but uh i i produced a record last fall for a guy named brian fallon he used to be in a band called gaslight anthem i think is is, is really a nice nice record um i'm trying to think of other bands that i like i think i do like almost all the bands i work with you know you can't love everything you do yeah but it's it's not a good situation if you hate what you're doing. So, um, I usually try to get a read on, on what you know the band is really like um, and what they're going for. But what are some other? Are some you ever other deal band? with some really outrageous personalities that in the studio okay. where you know real temperamental, like you gotta like be the, now the dip, you know I don't know the psychologist too. Yeah. Yeah, ego well, management. Absolutely, both my parents are psychiatrists, and, and there's <laughs> definitely. A big part of the job is, is, yes, is managing the mood in the studio and things like that. And people often ask me that, that kind of question. But the funny thing is, or like, you know, you work with a lot of big egos and like, I, I, that's not my experience, really. Or, and I also don't work with like crazy rock and roll partiers. Some bands will party, but, you know, I think maybe it's maybe the whole indie rock thing is like a little, I don't know, a little more highbrow or whatever. But the people <laughs> are, are very smart and down to earth. And the only really the only thing I have to wrestle with and it's all the time is just people's insecurities and people's anxieties you know even if you know that you, you can't it's it's you know to them it's it's not actual life or death but it's creative creative life or death for them every band you know they could not care more you know they so it's uh yeah there's definitely there can be a lot of stress um and it's my job to it part of my job is to I mean if you get good results people will be less stressed but you know, but you also have to see it coming sometimes because if someone gets too stressed, they can make, they can make the whole process a lot harder. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, hel it helps having done it for so long because you anticipate things too. There's always the, you know, people are nervous at first and then they get comfortable, but then they get a little freaked again. Then they get, <laughs> and they think it's all going to work out. And then they say, oh, then they think all is lost. Right? <laughs> okay. so, I was, my wife is a funny joke that she draw, it will draw a chart that looks like a roller coaster. <laughs> she hears it over and over, you know, album after album, but. You know, in the end, it all turns out all right. And I'm like, well, that's not guaranteed. But, but I was in the studio like years ago, decades ago. I don't know who it was. Like, maybe I was auditioning to be the drummer or something. But they were going one note the singer had to do. And it must have been four hours. And then they all did coke back then where people were doing coke oh. all the time. So they're doing coke lines. And then you do this one. It's not perfect to me. He'd, he'd reach this note. And then the, the, the engineer or producer would say, no, no, you got to do it again. And I was like, what is, this, what is he listening for? Because it sounds fantastic. <laughs> and over and over. And finally, the guy's voice got hoarse. Yeah, and, sure. And uh, I think they had and, and the session. But it must have been it was several hours just on one note. It's brutal. I, I try really hard not to enter into those kind of uh, things. And sometimes you can't avoid them, but you know, it's if, like the diff the version of that today, like I, I, I came up in those days when you were still on a tape machine, you were punching in and punching out. I think people can't imagine that today because what, you know, what they do now is they, they sing a take into the computer and then they sing another take and then they go, oh, let's do these parts over and they do another take, but they're all in the same track 
on playlists. So they could sing the song 50 times if they wanted to. And then, and then comes the comping where you sort through all those tapes. Oh my so God. Nothing, ever get, <laughs> no, nothing ever gets lost. There's no such thing as racing something. And, but in those days, if someone sang a note and it was really quite good, but I think we can do it better. You would go, you press play, the note would come, you'd hit record, you'd punch it, and you would erase what they'd just done. Oh. You know, like, and like people today, I don't think you can imagine that. You can't so go it, back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's no going back. Well, art, you know, artists are often asked, how, you know, how do you know when you're done? I mean, a painter, you know, he works over and over. And, and you must have, I guess you've just learned to have boundaries and say, you know what? Enough's enough, guys. This is it. It's, we're not doing it's, anymore. It's so, it's so hard. That's, yeah, that's a, it, that, that process never ends. And, and I almost never, I never say enough is enough. They have to come to that oh. realization on their own. But like I said, a lot of times when the recalls end up being, Put it back the way it was in the previous one like i think we're approaching the end you know i just spent a long long time finishing a record with a band from boston called darling side um who were it's a really interesting record they're four four guys who it's 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 largely acoustic there's generally not a drummer on this album though there there is quite a bit of drumming and percussion but they you know they, they sing in three and four part harmony and it's very very complicated doggy sorry the um <laughs> But um, yeah, that they were, they were, you know, they're one of these bands that was extremely particular in terms of just what they wanted, in terms of the textures of their voices, the balances between their harmonies, and, and then the aesthetics. And the aesthetics they wanted, were going for, were were really quite different uh, than what I'm used to in ways like they. So much of my job is trying to make like the drums more muscular or pummeling or whoa, the drums are huge. And these guys just kept saying like, turn the drums down, turn the drums down. <laughs> so um, it, was, it was definitely a challenging process, but you know, uh, in the end you just kind of, you definitely think like, oh, this, is, this will never end. But it, in the end you just kind of know it's done. And, uh, but it, it, it's tough. I mean, like the whole, again, the whole recallability thing is, is a blessing and a curse. Mm. Uh, I think last year or a year or two ago, Kanye West was the first person to re ask for recalls after the album was released. Oh, God. <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's, that's a nightmare. I can't imagine that. So. Well, we're talking about endings, and this, this podcast just came to an end. So I really want to thank you, Peter. Anytime. Uh, Darkwind Studios in Bridgeport. And uh, it was a real pleasure uh, getting a little inside look at, at what you do and the talent you bring to all these artists. Awesome. Well, hopefully I'll see you around town. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs>